Well, hi everybody. Welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, and it is the 6th of July, 2023. I uh, hope everybody's doing alrighty out there. Uh, little uh, drowsy. Let me just fix this a little bit. But that'll probably, you know, go away as time goes by. So by the time we end the show, I should be uh, completely wide awake and fully, uh, fully there. Um, so I uh, hope everybody's uh, doing well. I don't really have much really to talk about, so we'll probably just dive into questions pretty early today. Uh, however, um, finally, after honestly a month and a half of, of uh, struggle, uh, I got a chance to um, make some real progress on these um, uh, major mat, um, major mace mattingly stuff. So uh, that'll be for Monday's show, but I've just been bashing my head against the wall trying to get things working and, and actually got a lot of progress done. So I've got the four guys in their suits. I took the mercury textures and uh, took the silver reflective off and gave them um, different colors. And I've got, uh, got good, um, got good uh, faces, I think. So we'll see. Um, so we'll have that on Monday. Uh, other than that, uh, just two little things that were kind of on my mind. Um, one of them is um, this um, this Russian coup that you know had my wife really very very upset, thinking that you know that there was going to be a civil war and that Moscow was going to soon be in flames, uh, which lasted for. 30 hours or something like that at which point it just kind of stopped I don't know what to do about that or what to say about that uh, it doesn't um, it just it just continues to show me that no matter how much anybody thinks they know about what goes on inside Russia uh, nobody really knows what's going on inside Russia and I don't think the people inside Russia know what's going on inside Russia including uh, Vlad himself. I did get to do the final notes on uh, episode one of a of a Empire of Terror, and I started on uh, episode two. Um, the uh, the opening of episode two is um, well. Episode two is called Bacillus, and it's about uh, Lenin's trip from Switzerland to. Um, Petrograd in 1917 and how he traveled across Germany who Russia was at war with in a sealed train and it turned out it was paid for by German uh, high command intelligence there's no question about all that stuff anyway the whole um, the whole opening was written uh, you know first 20 minutes half an hour of this is about this this train trip and I saw uh, the opening for episode two and it's just a, a blank screen and then you just hear this this locomotive just getting closer and closer and closer and then it cuts to like an authentic train from right around that period and it's just and there's guys just shoveling coal into this thing you know and then the switches are moving and on the on the rails and it's just the most amazing piece of editing I've ever seen uh, ever the editor's name is Luke we had such problems on the Cold War uh, real problems on the Cold War. I had to do 900 notes on that. 
900. But this thing is insane. It looks it looks so good. Um, oh, hello, New Zealand. It's always a, a, a thrill. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for everybody for the kind words. Uh, and it is not something I've had an opportunity to experience too often. I certainly got that sense during the um, the Apollo 11 series. But when um, when when you were when you're looking at your own work which you've written and wouldn't say exactly directed but presented so you you know you were there for the whole every frame of it and i came out of there in march thinking oh, i think that looked really pretty good i think that went well i thought the scripts were good but when you see it and when you see what somebody with real talent can add to uh, what you start with it's a tremendous feeling it really is it's a tremendous tremendous feeling um It just just kind of blew me away. I wrote him a real note saying, you know, I've been an editor for 30 years now or something, and I did a lot of documentaries and stuff for History Channel and Discovery back when they were about history and discovering things. Um, but I've never seen anybody do this kind of editing before. And the the, the, the graphics, just the, the, the graphics are just, the, the entire post look is, is just phenomenal. Many times watching both of these uh, episodes now I found myself just having to stop myself and just say I'm not really in this huge dungeon I'm just standing in front of a really really well-made flat um, there's a moment in the first script I didn't know how this was going to work either um, but we had an excellent director and in the first episode I'm, I'm I mean, I'm in the basement of the Lubyanka for the first, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes or something. And then just on one shot, it just back to me on the, you know, just like coverage, and then back to me, coverage, back to me, coverage, back to me, and then goes back to me. And I say, um, we have a lot of pictures over here. And I just walk off the set. I just walk off the set, and the camera pans, and I walk into... Uh, the room that we were calling the map room, which is also beautiful, practical set with um, th these guys had probably 200 photographs framed and ready to go of everybody that I mentioned in the script. So between episodes, we'd rearrange them on the wall and whichever whichever pictures we'd use for that particular episode. And the B-roll, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, uh, the B-roll is, um, so if you're editing a show, the A-roll is, is your content. That'd be me. I'd be the A-roll. I'd be the guy who's telling the story and I'm on camera. B-roll is stuff that you use to cut away with or, or to accent the story. And when I got there to shoot the thing, I got there late in the afternoon of the day before I was supposed to start. Got to the set, took a look at the, um, at the set, couldn't believe it. And, um, and then uh, there was this, um, they were shooting B-roll in the map room. And I was looking at it on the monitors in the control room. I just couldn't believe it. There's this really excellent set. It looks like a Russian study, and it's just all this beautiful furniture and all these pictures. And there's this slow dolly in, and here's a picture of Trotsky in a, in a, in a golden frame on a tripod with the background, the lights, and just a slow push in. And, you know, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, 
Andrew Delay asks, is Jeremy going to give uh, We Belittle members a deal on seeing the new series? I went out to Nashville two weeks ago, three weeks ago, to ask about four things, and that was the uh, the first one on my list, and I did not get an answer. That doesn't mean a no or a yes, but I am going to continue uh, to fight really hard for that. I, I asked him for a significant a certain number of memberships for a certain amount of time um he didn't say yes didn't say no either but it was a strange trip um however uh whatever i am just determined to just keep fighting until i get something you know so uh i was told when we shot this that this thing would be premiering at the end of the summer i, I saw their production schedule in terms of delivery dates it's actually going to premiere in November, which I'm a little disappointed about. However, when this thing opens, I, I am going to, I am going to continue to push for this, really, really hard. And then I am going to, um, whatever we get, I'm going to time for the release of. Um, of Empire of Terror. So BillWhittle.com members and hopefully a few extras so we can bring in some new members. I'm hoping to get, well I won't tell you the numbers of how long I was hoping to get but because I don't know whether it's been approved. I don't know whether any of it's been approved. I might say no to all of it. But certainly I wanted uh, Daily Wire Plus memberships for a certain number of people for a certain length of time. And, and especially uh, due to the fact that so much of this stuff has taken up so much of my time that it's really cost me in terms of firewalls and moving back to America and all this other stuff and 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 that's not fair to the members and uh, I just went in there and made the case that um, uh, that um, that you know that the, the membership deserved this Cody Fett with a super chat says no offense bill but a year-long trial membership is a bit much the industry standard is a month for trial accounts three at the max. Well, the one thing I've learned about dealing with uh, Daily Wire is uh, you had better go in, um, uh, you better go in asking hi because uh, they're not gonna, um, they're not gonna say, well, here you know what, we'll just add this. You you you're just gonna you know. I just decided to ask for as much as I thought I could get away with, and then uh, we'll see. But even even a month. Again, I don't, I don't have it yet. I, I continue to fight for it. I've been fighting for it for months now, for a year, over a year. However, um, that is my hope, and and also, um, it's good for, it's good for them. I mean, there's nobody I don't think that's a member of my audience that hasn't heard of Daily Wire or Daily Wire uh, Plus, and so my feeling, my my pitch was. Look, here's here's potential. You know, you're going to convert a lot of these free memberships once people see the, the 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 you know the cornucopia of wonders that are behind the locked door here. But in any event, it it seems like I really owe it to these people and stood with me for so long, and and so I'm going to just keep going. Uh, he was in the middle of a shooting movie, and it, it was just not was just not just not a great time to, for uh, for that kind of thing. Um, I'm starting on the uh, Frank Luke uh, thing, and that's um, something I was real excited about, and we'll see how that goes, so 
one little uh, one little step at a time. However, um, if if when I say I'm gonna when time comes for this thing to be released, when I say I'm gonna fight for it harder, I'm gonna fight for it like hard, hard, because this is not a lot to ask for, especially considering uh, the the quality of the work that they got. Uh, and um, and have gotten over four different series now, and and this thing's in a league of its own. Uh, it, the, the the producer of the of the Empire series said it's like a documentary uh, stumbled onto a feature film set, and and I just thought, wow, that's incredible. Um, and like I said, I was just watching this thing, and 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 I'm and again, I just finally just. That, that's not that long corridor behind me those rows and rows of cells that don't actually exist there. they're not there you can't tell you cannot tell what the boundary is um uh a purple union says he loves a, a 2001 uh picture in the background thank you there's actually those uh five pictures bowman and then there's a the um, pan am clipper going to the uh station and there's one of the station head on and then uh, i think the landing on the moon pad and all the rest of it um so uh, anyway, so there's that. But but this thing is is off the hook. It, it's just it's just incredible. And um, and I'm very very proud of it. Uh, so it, it's a especially after this last experience, which was not fun. Uh, but to to sit there and see and see this stuff and just be like. Like you, you know, just kind of watching your your own stuff that you're like, whoa, wow, wow, really? So, in any event, uh, there's that. I'm monitoring both streams. I, I I monitor both streams and I and I produce a stream that goes on in my head. I'm, I'm multitasking. <sighs> so, um, it's it's freaking marvelous. Uh, and I think I think like like the Apollo series, it's it's. Um, I think it's going to be around for a while. Uh, I showed it to Natasha. She she loved the look of it and everything. And I showed her the first half of the second episode, and she started talking about all the things that she enjoyed about about the Soviet Union when she was a little girl. Things like you know, these they had these free camps, and you walk into any clinic anywhere, and if you were go to college for free and if you wanted to be a scientist you had this the 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 the, the, um, the grades they, the state would send you off to be scientists or send you off to be a ballerina and 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 uh, you know all, all the benefits of this and and I realized um, well first of all there's a lot about that, that that has some truth to it but also a lot of it has to do with just this sort of feeling of um, you know, just kind of shame, I guess, when you hear about all of these murders that went on in her country. That she, well, this isn't this is her country now. Um, so uh, it's hard. It's hard to deal with it. I had a feeling that was going to be coming up somewhere. Is it just anyway? So she was saying, you know, you just you should, should be fair and say that there were some good things there too. And my response to that was, honey, there calling for socialism in every campus of America. Everybody in America, every young kid has been told, hey, you get paid a living wage, you get your apartment is free and your food is free and your health care is free and, 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 and all of this stuff and they think it's a swell idea. Nobody's heard of the price 
that's the thing that nobody's heard about and and I don't want to present a, a balanced picture it's not my job to present a balanced picture I explained if I'm prosecuting a guy who's murdered 15 children I'm not obligated to talk about all the good things he did during the course of his life I'm obligated to make the case of you know of the of the crime and and the, the the balance of it in terms of being fair is not about being fair to uh, about being fair to whatever good things may have happened uh, in terms of things like you know uh, walk into a clinic and so on and 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 the the medicine the, the, I have a Russian doctor because I was just so impressed by um, the fact that he wasn't you know doing what most American doctors have been forced to do, which is see, you know, 400 patients a day or whatever the case may be. Ben Adams for Super Chat says the What We Saw series was awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, both Apollo and, and the Cold War thing. Um, and one of the things, and this is just sheer vanity as well, but it's, it's also kind of a, a significant aspect of it. So in the Apollo, um, in the Apollo series, I was kind of in period, you know, hair kind of slicked back a little bit, and 60s tie, and, and uh, then on the Cold War, they did a great job with the wardrobe. I had a different, you know, kind of 60s outfit for each one of the 13 episodes. I wasn't crazy about the makeup or the lighting or the hair. I just kind of looked mummified, I thought. But on this one, I've got the, you know, got the Malibu Einstein hair going, and I've got this um, just a black low-cut suit with a white shirt, open collar, and a, and a blood-red satin pocket square, because it needed a little bit of color. And, uh, and, and the reason we did that was, I said, uh, from the beginning of this, when it was, even before we were talking about shooting it, I said, in, in the case of Apollo and the Cold War, I could look like I was part of the environment. An Apollo thing, I looked like I was a guy from the 60s, and and it, and it worked. And the same thing for the Cold War. But on this one, I said, I have absolutely, absolutely have to look like I've been, like I have parachuted into this place. I cannot for a second look like I'm a part of this in the way that I look like I was a part of the Apollo program or a part, like the Cold War thing was the set was great you know you got the scotch and the reel-to-reel -reel recorder and the old tv and all that other stuff so that that worked really well but in in this case i said um i i, I cannot look anything like a part of this i have to look like a, i have to look like the, the voice of 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 justice it's like the voice of American justice, and I gotta look like 2023, and I've gotta look out of place here. That's the term I was looking for. I really, really need to be out of place here. I don't want to be associated with this. I am, I am prosecuting this crime. That's what I'm doing. And the balance I explained um, to uh, Natasha. The fairness and the balance is is that. Again and again and again, I keep making the case that this was not what the Russian people did. It's what was done to them. You know, this was what was done to them. There has been, appropriately enough, obviously, you know, a, a, a racially, I mean, human racially, uh, 
burned into our conscious and subconscious the the effects of the Nazis and the death camps and Dachau and 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 um, Auschwitz and Treblinka and all the rest. We're we're all aware of that. Um, nobody's aware of Coloma or the little triplex of execution spots that are each of you know. In the first episode, I say if you mark the center of Moscow, it looks like a bullseye. It's got a big circle. It's actually got a series of concentric circles. Probably make it easier for Slim Pickens to hit if the radar goes out um, on the bomb run. But uh, right in the center is uh, the Kremlin. Right in the center, outside of the Kremlin, but is Red Square, and in, and in Red Square is Lenin's tomb, and in the center of Lenin's tomb is Lenin's forehead. And so the first episode is if you walk. 1,562 feet north-northeast, you'll come to this building where they murdered 100,000 people. There's a toy store across the street. And then you come out of this building, and you turn right on this street, you walk about five minutes, it's four-tenths of a mile, and you'll see this unremarkable gate still there. 13,000 people shot in that courtyard just behind that gate. And if you wanted to go in the other direction, you could go down here to this building called the shooting, that the, the Russians called the shooting house. So 36,000 people murdered in this building that's going to be a perfume store. That kind of thing. So my uh, my fairness was to was to not demonize the Russian people for this. It was to demonize the, uh, obviously, ver many of them Russian, some of them Polish, and some of them not, but most of them Russian. But these are people who were, the thing that, that is most striking about the Empire of Terror, and the thing that kept surprising me when I was writing it, I kept saying, well, let's get to Stalin, let's get to Stalin. It's like, no, I'm, I'm staying here. This is where, this is where it all happened, all, all with Lenin and, and, and all of this stuff, it's amazing how un-Russian Lenin was. He spent the previous 17 years in exile in Zurich and, uh, and uh, Munich, uh, uh, or Berlin at least certainly, uh, and London and other places, you know, drinking tea and talking to professional revolutionaries and writing agitation. He hadn't been in Russia for 17 years. He had nothing but, but contempt for the Russian people and the Russian peasants, and he said so many times. And uh, I guess since I'm on a roll on this now, uh, I, don't, I am not aware, I'm not aware of any other historian who has either made this realization or at least voiced it. Now, that doesn't mean it's not the case, I've just never heard it before, and I find it to be so un unbelievably important that when I realized what had happened, I, I actually was like, "My God, man, you may have actually, you may have actually hit on something like really, really, really important here." So, since I didn't have a warm up uh, for tonight, now turns like turns out now I do. So, so Lenin reads Marx when he's a boy and he said he talks about a teenager he talks about falling in love with him like romantically in love with with marxism and 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 the whole idea of marxism and so the reason lenin's not in russia for those 17 years is he's working to be a, a, a communist agitator for marxism the reason he's not in russia 
is because he and all the rest of the big brains didn't think that communism was going to come to Russia. In fact, it was impossible for communism to come to Russia. The reason that Lenin and so many of these other intellectuals and so many of these intellectuals who are teaching colleges in America today, that's the last bastion of Leninism and communism, is here in America on college campuses. Um, but uh, they all took Marx as not as philosophy, but as science. Marx said this is it's an it's a it's a historical inevitability, and this is constantly why you'd hear the communists saying like we are on the wrong side of history and and you'll end up in the dustbin of history and all you know this is science. It's not economics. It's not politics. It's science. And so here I am writing this uh, thing about the Russian secret police, and I just keep coming back to the revolution and and coming back to how these ideas were brought into Russia. Nicholas II and the regime of the Tsars was a, was a brutal autocratic regime, but anybody who went to prison under both of those systems said that the, just incomparably, that, that if, if you had experienced the communist uh, prison system or torture system, you would pray that you had been arrested by the Tsar and his police. So anyway, here's the point. So Lenin is in Zurich and then and then the Tsar abdicates, and there's chaos in, in the capital of Petrograd, which had been renamed by Nicholas II to boost morale. Nicholas II had gone to the, um, to the front to lead the troops in person. Catastrophic mistake. I said Nicholas II, I wrote, had a supernatural ability to make the wrong decision. Um, but... There's, so there's Lenin in Switzerland, and all of a sudden the Tsar's gone, and there's turmoil in Russia. Power's lying on the ground. He's, he's, understandably enough, although I don't often feel any sympathy or connection with Lenin, he had to get back there. So connections were made, and the, and the, the Germans, if you look at the map, you can't get from Switzerland to uh, St. Petersburg, Petrograd, without going right across Germany at least not without going around the wide ray and 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 Lenin didn't want to come in by boat he was afraid of U-boats so he's afraid of a lot of things so he's on this train anyway here's the point he's on the train he's got about a week or two weeks ended up taking two weeks to get there and the entire time he's traveling from Zurich to the uh, northern part of um, of the peninsula he has to disembark and take a boat across the Gulf of Finland He's got two weeks there, and he's working on something that was that came to be known as his April Theses. And Lenin's April Theses were enshrined in Marxist doctrine. It's, it's, it's like you know, it's like the, it's like a chapter of the Gospel. You know, it, it, Leninism is essentially the April Theses. And I thought, okay, so he's working on the April Theses and so on. And 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 I, and and I had known about this, and I just thought, okay. And then it just like like a thunderbolt hit me that what he was doing on that train for those two weeks and what he was writing in his in his april theses he was inverting marxism not just not just modifying it he was inverting it in order for him to take power marx said that revolution, communism will come when the proletariat, that would be factory workers, when the factory workers 
finally rise up against their oppressors, take over the means of production, and start producing all of these goods and services for the people. That's the scientific theory you have. The proletariat arises, you, you banish the bourgeoisie or kill them, and then the workers' paradise will arrive where the workers will take over everything, and once the workers are controlling everything, the entire idea of a state will wither away. And this is Marxism, and this is what Lenin it was his religion. He openly called it his religion. Okay, so far so good. So what is what are what are the April theses? The the April theses are him changing Marx completely upside down. He's not a Marxist anymore. He's he's an anti-Marxist. He is trying to make the case that he's going to bring this workers' revolution, the dictatorship of the proletariat, to a country that didn't have a proletariat. There were 90 million peasants and 1 million factory workers. There was no proletariat in Russia. None. So, so the scientific theory that Marx is, well, this is the inevitability. Of, Lenin's looking at this. He says, how do, I get in, how do I get power in this place? How do I bring communism to a place where communism is impossible according to the person who wrote communism? How do I do it? And he basically had to find a way to justify his taking power. So he talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat. And when he got off the train, he said, all power to the Soviets. But the thing he did in the April Theses was basically say, yeah, Marx was wrong about this. This business about having to have an industrialized society before communism comes, we'll, we'll, we'll just pretend he didn't say that. Because even though Russia doesn't have a proletariat, you see, if you have, and the peasants, which is Russia, you know, which was the population, and the peasants are too stupid and too superstitious and, and too religious, and they don't have class consciousness, so none of the conditions for communism are right. However, 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 a small band of professional revolutionaries could bring about the Marxist revolution, and then once the revolution occurred, then they would make their own proletariat. They would build the, the church from the top down. They'd, they'd start with the top of the steeple and then build the foundation down from there. He, this arch student and disciple of Marxism inverted Marxism in 10 days so that he could get off of the train and assume power. Don't have a proletariat here? No problem. That's right. Don't worry about that. Got that covered. Uh, you see, um, uh, what what we can do is we can have these professional revolutionaries, and and that's exactly what he did, by the way. Once he had the the wheels, uh, the the levers of power, which were just lying on the street there, anybody could have picked them up. Uh, then he immediately started doing what he'd always planned to do, which is starve the peasants, take away their power. Promise them land, give them land from the bourgeoisie, get your revolution. Once the revolution's secured, take the land back from the peasants, starve them into submission, kill the ones who are putting up the biggest fight, but mostly starve them so that these 90 million peasants and 1 million proletariats, proletarians, you starve the peasants so that they have no choice but to move to the cities and become factory workers, otherwise they starve to death. That's how you make a proletarian class, is you starve the peasants and force them into the cities. Then if you have to kill 10, 20, 30 million people, well, you know, that's, uh, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? So, 
this is the thing that, that just just I that I just simply couldn't believe was that this guy in order to gain power and bring about the Marxist revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat had to not only ignore Marx, he had to turn Marx upside down. And he did. And he pulled it off. And that's what he had in common with Hitler. Neither one of these guys were particularly deep thinkers or or uh, they, they weren't just megalomaniacal, they were monomaniacal. reason Hitler and 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 Lenin came to power was because of their single-mindedness. There is nothing that either one of those two men did, did not a breath that they took from the time they were in their 20s to the time they died. There was not a breath that they took where they weren't breathing revolution. That's all they were about. Hitler never, ever, ever, ever talked about hunting, sports, the weather, nothing it was all about power same for lenin all about power all about power that m monomaniacal will and that you have to give to these two mass murderers you got to give them that will just unshakable will and and in the case of both of them everybody loves to compare stalin to hitler but lenin makes a much it's a much better match because neither one of them cared the slightest about what it would take to get to power. They didn't care if, if, if it killed people. They certainly didn't care if it seemed to be hypocritical and indeed go against their own principles. It didn't matter. They just had to get in power. And once they got into power, then, then they then they would start killing people to make sure that she's that they stayed in power. That simple. Eric Blake says, did that stop the old Grinch? Of course not. He simply said, if I can't find a proletariat, I'll make one instead. That's it. He made he went to launch the dictatorship of the proletariat when there was no proletariat. All this and much, much more uh, in the Empire of Terror, which will be coming in November, and which I'm extraordinarily proud of and and have been just over the moon delighted with uh, in terms of the quality of the production. I, I, I had a couple people say that the, the Apollo series was the best, not only the best space documentary they ever saw, but the best documentary they ever saw. I was very, very flattered about that. And, and I think there's something to this, but this is, this is going to be the best documentary I've ever seen. And um, there's that. Uh, Dave Big Booty says, "When's the next? When's that Fox Business uh, uh, Moon Show going to air?" I don't know. I'm hoping. I heard uh, like August. However, um, I did not. I have not heard back from um, from Jimmy. Uh, although I haven't contacted him either, so um, I'll let you know when that's about ready to go. Uh, uh, in the Twitch stream, High Speed says, uh, "Have you discussed this with Jordan Peterson? He's very knowledgeable in this area you're commenting on." Jordan Jordan Peterson is the only person I've ever heard talk about uh, this consistently work this into modern day politics. And among the many discussions I had in Nashville when I was there uh, three weeks ago, uh, one or two of them with the marketing people were to say, look, 
when this thing is ready to go, I need to do at least at least one two-hour session with Jordan Peterson. Ideally, it'd be nice if we could talk for 20, 30 minutes about each episode because he's the only person out there who's talking about the what this is. You know what what this what this is, and for those of you who keep talking, you know, Daily Wire and stuff. I should mention that it's available on Apple Podcasts. I'm not sure about SoundCloud. Certainly on Apple Podcasts. Uh, uh, Apollo Eleven, The Cold War, America's Forgotten Heroes, and um, and The Empire of uh, Terror. They'll all be on on podcasts, so you know you don't have to pay the membership to see it. But in this particular case, uh, this one's going to be worth seeing. So. I'm going to uh, try and see if I can get the marketing person to give me um, a chance to post, you know, the first two, three minutes maybe privately for the members only on a on a private link so that, you know, just so they can see it. But uh, it is, uh, it's just really, really good. And there is a, um, there is another history series that, that I have been, uh, contracted for uh, the to be announced series um, we haven't got that uh, discussed yet or down yet I, I think I would like to do the war in the Pacific frankly the 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 Pacific um, documentary the, the companion to uh, band of brothers was really the story of the Marine Corps but I you can't tell the story of the Pacific without the Marine Corps, but I'd like to talk about. I I, I think if I was going to do the next series, the one I really, really my heart would be in would be to do um, the uh, the U.S. Navy in the Pacific War, uh, because people know about Pearl Harbor. Young people don't know much about anything. It's not their fault. Being educated by Leninists, but. Uh, most people know about Pearl Harbor. A few people know about the Doolittle Raid and um, and Iwo Jima. And you know, there's just so much there, so much there. The naval engagements on Guadalcanal alone, you know, um, all of the I think there were six or seven um, carrier battles between the two navies. Um, the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Uh, with the Marianas, the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot, Taffy Three is the high point of any story. That's Taffy. My life's goal is to tell Taffy Three. Midway, yes, people know about Midway exactly. But but and Midway was Midway. But Midway was was four Japanese carriers against three American carriers. By the time you get to the Battle of the Philippine Sea, you're talking about seven versus twelve or something along those lines. It's the it's always, to me, I always look at history, you know, from a storytelling point of view, If, if because that's I'm not really a historian so much as a storyteller. I'm an amateur historian. I take the facts very seriously, and I do a lot of research on these things. But for me, the thing I liked about Apollo and Cold War and America's Forgotten Heroes and Empire of Terror is you've got, in many cases, years, in all of those cases, you've got years and in the case of the Cold War, you've got nearly 80 years. Wow.
uh, just looked up and saw uh, Orange Peels 2010 says my uncle disappeared in the Pacific War in a naval test aircraft see that's the kind of story I'm interested in um, I'll, in the battle of the, so it's those it's those human moments right and and the difference between Ray Spruance and um, Bill Halsey and uh, in the Battle of Philippine Sea, uh, Spruance, the, the U.S. Navy now is really beginning to hit its stride now. So, uh, in the leading up to the capture of the Marianas, which would be Saipan, uh, Guam, Saipan, and um, oh come on, Tinian. Um, so. There's the Japanese fleet. Spruance's orders are to, are to cover the invasion. Cover the invasion. This, this invasion of the Marianas has to happen. And the Japanese are launching carrier attacks and they're launching land attacks. And we're, we shoot 600 some Japanese planes out of the sky in one day for a loss of 60 American planes. The Great Marianas Turkey shoot and the Japanese fleet's uh, retreating and guys like Bill Halsey and other People are just steam coming out of their ears. They're screaming at Spruance to go after him and finish him off. And Spruance is saying, "No, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to draw my carriers off. My job is to protect the landing. That's my mission: is to make sure the is to make sure the invasion of these islands succeeds. And I'm not going to go chasing those guys and have them outflank me or, or 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 lose this operation. No." And Spruance was right because two, you know a year later, Halsey would take the bait and. That's what caused the Tappy Three to uh, adventure. But anyway, it's talking about the human story. So the reason I want to tell the Pacific War is I want to tell stories like this. Um, during that battle, as the Japanese were retreating, they'd already done. Uh, they'd shot down six hundred Japanese planes. What they didn't, what the Americans didn't realize, certainly Halsey didn't realize. But the but the Great Marianas Turkey shoot didn't that that battle I think we sank maybe one or two of their carriers, but that's not what that's not what the battle was about. There, th that was the end of the Japanese carrier base. That was the end of Japanese carriers, not because we sank them, but because we shot down every one of their pilots, killed killed virtually all of their pilots. They could build airplanes, not as fast as we could, obviously, but they could build more airplanes. But they couldn't train up any more pilots. And after the after the Great Marianas Turkey shoot, it doesn't matter if they sail away with five carrier decks or seven or twenty. They don't have pilots anymore. An aircraft carrier without airplanes is useless. And Halsey didn't realize that. So here's the story. It's late in the day. The carriers, the Japanese carriers, are retreating. Spruance is willing to take another shot at another another attack. It's getting late. It's like four four o'clock in the afternoon. These guys are at maximum range of the of the of the airplanes that that he's going to send up. So Spruance is trying to decide whether or not to do this raid, and he decides he's going to do it. But he knows that this raid means that if these guys go off and and do this attack, sunset attack on the on the uh, Japanese carriers on the Japanese fleet, then they're going to have to fly home in the dark. And um, and landing in the dark on an aircraft carrier today with a, a 
carrier instrument landing system and and you know you get a little lighted you know it's terrifying but landing at night is is especially terrifying and the real threat the only real threat to the carriers by this point certainly at the at, at this time in the battle he knows he's beaten the japanese uh, naval Air Force. He knows he's beaten the Japanese carriers. He knows they're running away. There's only one threat now to him, one, and that is Japanese submarines. That is the only thing that's a real genuine threat out there. So Spruance launches these, this, this strike. The American planes go out there. They strike these Japanese fleet. They start coming back home. They're watching their fuel gauges for like two hours. They're all flying at, at, at engines as lean as they can get it. They're all flying at their at their at their best distance altitude, at their best distance airspeed, which is slow. Crawling home, and even you know it's not like they're going to use GPS. Even if they get into the general area, how are they going to how are they going to land? You know the fleet's blacked out because of submarines. You can't just you know do that. So Spruance. This is the kind of story, I just love it. I love it, because I can see it. So you've got hundreds of American pilots coming back, single-seat guys and fighters, and three guys in Avengers, and two in the uh, dive bombers. You've got hundreds of American soldiers, sailors rather, naval aviators, heading back into the east, into the darkness, hoping to get close enough to the general vicinity of the carriers so that when they run out of fuel and ditch, they've got a chance of being picked up the next day. And Spruance is running his whole fleet blacked out like they're always blacked out. The sub-threat is a real threat. The Japanese know we're there because we've just fought this gigantic battle. And Spruance thinks it over, and he sends out this order to the entire fleet, and he says... He says, turn on every light you got. Everything. Turn on everything you've got. He had, he had searchlights on the decks of these carriers scanning the skies. Every single plane, every single ship was lit up to the maximum. They were firing rockets and flares. They were risking the sub-attack so that their guys would have a place to come home. And these pilots coming back to this expecting to ditch in the in the in the dark come back and see this light show it's like vegas down there and that just took so much guts moral courage you know on the part of spruance moral courage single japanese subs sank a, a number of carriers hornet was sunk by one one submarine shortly after it was commissioned one of our subs sank the largest ship ever sunk by a submarine was going to be one of the uh, Yamamoto class, uh, I'm sorry, Yamato class battleships, and they converted it into an aircraft carrier. I want to say Zuihu, but I'm not 100% sure about that. This was the biggest aircraft carrier ever prior to our supercarriers, and uh, an American sub sank that. So this is, this is the trick. This, this is the only way you can lose the war now. Shinano, thank you. It's the only way you can lose the war. this battle now is to is have a sub-attack. It's over. You've won. And he turns on all the lights they have. And I just, these are the stories that blow my mind. If you tell that story correctly, and I'm, and I'm, 
uh, Sad Wings. It's the new series is called An Empire of Terror. It's slated to release in early November. But if you tell that story from the point of view of a of a pilot, somebody who's been a pilot, especially somebody who's been a glider pilot, I think it was within my first ten solos ever. Certainly in my first ten. I flew for seven hours and went 186 miles without an engine in the Mojave Desert in the summertime where there's so much lift you throw a rock in the air and it just keeps going up. So I was flying this triangular course. I went around it three times. Crystal out to here like Cal City or something and down to um, Palmdale and, and around. And so when the lift is good, you're going up, everything's great. And you're always constantly thinking about where you're going to land because you don't have an engine on this particular aircraft you're flying. But when you are out there, and, and I'll never forget this, I was on one of these legs and I was out there as far away from the field as I've been. And I just could not find any lift there. I just couldn't find it. Uh, and, you know, you're just get lower and lower and lower and you're just flying along just waiting for that little nudge something to tell you you can find some rising air uh, during that flight I'd found lift that was 14 knots of lift I was going up I was just going straight up at you know 20 miles an hour a lot of that was really good but when I was as far away as I'd been I could not find any lift and then suddenly I found just enough just enough and I remember thinking to myself, a half a knot of lift when you're far from home is a much better feeling than 20 knots of lift when you're not. And I just kind of clawed my way back into the desert and then found some real lift. But there was, you know, look, it's not the end of the world. You're a glider pilot. You're prepared to land on fields anywhere. I didn't want to do that, though. I kind of wanted to bring the airplane back to the place where I took off from on account of me being, you know, on my eighth flight or something in my solo flight. Uh, and so I have a, 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 a sense of what those guys felt like. That sense of just, it's not, it's not panic, it's actually the opposite of panic. You've got, panic is like, oh my God. Panic is when the engine quits. This was more like, you've got hour to think about this you know an hour you just constantly 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 recalculating recalculating how much how much what's the what's the l over d how far can i glide for every foot i drop how far can i go forward doing the math do i have enough altitude to get back and and for an hour you're just sweating bullets out there you know just praying for this refueling in the air and then when you get it and and when you get it there's like some hope here you know a little hope and then and then it just keeps continuing and then then you begin to think my god maybe there is a chance i can make it and then after time it's like i got a 50 50 chance of getting home now and after that it's like i, I think we're actually going to make it and then yeah i'm in range i'm in range it's eric said not so much terror panic as dread dread is the word it's just this is constant dread and you get to live with it for a long time because it's not like you're getting shot at it's just that you're running out of fuel i was running out of my fuel was was rising here my thermals 
were was my fuel and gliders and i was running out of fuel and and then i found some so if you can capture that feeling and put it into the put it into the um put the audience into the mind of these guys who are who are 20 years old by the way right these are not i gotta stop saying right who are 20 years old they're these are not this is not this is not sully out there the, these are these are kids who had to grow up real fast and um their entire young lives are you know ahead of them. now we had to ditch a lot of those airplanes um and most of the planes that got back that ditched we picked up the pilots on we picked up pilots the next day all the way down the trail towards where the japanese fleet was we were picking up guys that ran out of fuel um and so we got most of our pilots back we didn't get all of them back um they had uh spruance had also sent the order out that to these pilots and said don't worry about what carrier you're from just land on any deck you can get to if you've got enough fuel to take one of the carriers that are a little deeper into the formation do that so that your buddies who are running on vapors you know can land but we're not going to be we're not going to be pissy about this now just come home what a great moment what a, what an amazing guy race bruins was uh and nobody knows about race bruins and I'm very fortunate to have visited uh, an Arleigh Burke class destroyer, and I was especially happy that it was uh, DDG-111, which was the USS uh, Spruance. So there you go. That's one tiny little story out of the hundreds of little stories like this that nobody knows about that actually happened. You know, Hollywood doesn't know how to make any movies anymore, They and they're out of franchises to destroy. So... Somebody's got to do this. And the thing that I don't understand is how do you how do you not tell a story that actually happened? It doesn't require an imagination. You know, you just just read what happened. The story the story's been written. Those guys wrote the screenplay. The screenplay is sitting there on the ground. It, it, it it's in 15 different books if you go looking for them. And and that is one story out of hundreds in the in this uh, Pacific War with the U.S. Navy, and nobody tells it. And the the the, the Doolittle raid, uh, the last time that was talked about was sixty seconds over Tokyo, which was which was what nineteen forty. It might have been during the war, actually. Come to think of it, Midway has been made a couple times. They made Midway, you know, what, two, three, four years ago. And I and I had no desire to see that. And I and I finally did. And I talked to um, I talked to uh, I talked to uh, Steve Skinner, who's the guy who wrote the book about Frank Luke, and we were talking about he hadn't signed the way that he he signed the book rights. He has also the life rights for Frank Luke, and so if we could get Steve Skinner, meaning Daily Wire to um, agree to option his book as source material. That's where I got most of my stuff about Frank Luke. I'm switching gears here for a moment just to tell you how this thing works. Uh, so I, I talked to him for a, a, 
I, I was just trying to pitch the thing, so I was really briefed on the pitch. I wanted him to know that I really, really understood this, and I wanted to do this right. So I gave him an hour-long pitch, and the guys from Daily Wire you know, came in a little late on the conversation. After about 10, 15 minutes, they said, okay, well, you guys seem to be getting along okay. We'll just, um, you know, because this is just like two computers and just modems talking to each other. But Steve uh, Skinner and I knew we were on the same page when we were talking about this Frank Luke story, and, and I said something or other, and, and, and Steve said, look, I don't want to make Flyboys, right? And I said, oh, man, I can't believe you said that. Yes. Yes. Exactly. That's going to be our shorthand from now on. Anytime we, we, we talk about something that is cheap or easy or, or, or doesn't belong there, we're just going to talk. We're just going to say Flyboys. We're not making Flyboys. For those of you unfamiliar with Flyboys, undoubtedly you want to rush out and see it. Flyboys was a, I don't know, came out in 2005 or six somewhere in that general ballpark, maybe a little later. About World War One pilots. There was no story there. The story that was there was completely overhyped. But the worst part about Flyboys was it was done with CGI and 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 had endless numbers of shots where the, the the plane would come and you would go like between the wires of the wing and as the CG plane, as the CG camera flies between the CG wires and CG wings of the CG airplane, they put in a little CG camera shake to convince you that you really did go through the wires of this airplane. It was absurd. It was absurd. It was ridiculous. It was it was a, a, a movie that, that tried to make it wasn't about anyone or anything. It was completely fictional. You didn't give a damn about any of the characters. And so all you got are these CG effects that are so over the top that nobody believes it. You might as well be watching, you know, Star Wars. And I mean, like, prequel Star Wars. Okay. All right. So he's attacking the donut ship. Okay. Wow. That's exciting. So we didn't want to make Flyboys, and that's what Midway was. Midway was Flyboys. It was it was a it was a a story that had so much inherent drama in it that these morons had to add what they thought was drama because they thought that would make it more exciting. So when you see these guys doing the dive the dive bombing runs runs on the carriers and the Japanese carriers. There was some, you know, there was anti-aircraft fire up there. But the Japanese were never as good as anti-aircraft fire as we were, and this was early in the war. But on Flyboys, these guys are flying, it's like they're flying down a, 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 a factory chimney. Just nothing, just nothing but explosions, just nothing but explosions everywhere. And I guess they thought that would make it more dramatic. And so they, uh, they actually did this, I swear to God they did. They had this guy make a dive dive bombing attack on a Japanese carrier, the real guy, the name of the real guy. And they he's going in lower and he's diving, 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 and he's supposed to release the bomb or supposed to pull out, let's say, at eighteen hundred feet, whatever. Okay? And when these guys so dive bombing is when you take the plane and the plane provides the guidance for the bomb. The 
the plane is aiming the bomb, and when it releases the bomb, it's not like the bomb falls and has a chance to hit. The bomb is going to follow the same trajectory as the plane, so you line up the trajectory, steep dive angle, 80-degree dive angle. You get the airplane nose pointed where you want it, and then you just basically release the bomb, and essentially the two just separate. The bomb just keeps going down, and ideally it hits the target. So once again, they're doing things like, you know, 3,000 feet, and the altimeter's running down, and the guy's going to he's got this look. And his, and his back's are 2,000 feet. And I don't know. <laughs> Meanwhile, outside, it's like, you know, it's like explosion of the fireworks factory. <laughs> uh, 1,800 feet. That's the pullout point. And he's got the steely-eyed look, you know. <laughs> he's a big meatball on the deck of the carrier. He's getting bigger and bigger. 1,600 feet. <laughs> oh, wow, what guts. You know, 1,400, something along these lines, right? <laughs> Releases this thing. Pulls this this plane into this, into this high G pullout. And as he pulls out, this is in the Midway movie, as this, as this uh, dive bomber pulls out of the dive, you see the bomb hit the carrier and blow up. And as the dive bomber pulls out of the dive, it is so low that, and it's got a little bit of a bank angle, it is so low that it brushes a wingtip through the water. Just, shh, just brushes a wingtip through the water, as planes are wont to do, you know. The second that wingtip touches the water, that plane just cartwheels into the water. You don't just get to dip a wing into a substance that's six times, 600 times denser than air and just have it just, you know, it's now just psh, dipped a wing in the water. Wow, that was close. I bet that was dramatic, huh? He got so close that he actually dipped his wing into the water. Why did, why, 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 why? Bart's treasure said plane would crash because physics with nine or ten exclamation points, which I don't think is enough. Um, does this have anything to do with James Bradley's books, Flyboys? I didn't read the book. I'm just talking about the Flyboys movie. Flyboys and Midways were both the same kind of movie where there was a, a story with no story, cliches masquerading as drama, and actual historical events that are so inherently dramatic that any attempt to heighten them is not only bad storytelling, it's an insult. It's an insult to reality. It, it, it just, I, I just couldn't watch it. And, and, and it. and the movie failed. And I think the reason the movie failed is because it was too spectacular, you know? Nobody believed it. Nobody believed it. I saw another example of this, which wasn't nearly as offensive. Um, what's it called? Uh, I'm not going to go to trouble looking it up. It, it's a recent movie came out within the last couple of months. Uh, is it, was it Dedication? Devotion? Was it Devotion? Another true story about... Um, one of the first black American aviators who's flying the Korean War. He's got a white wingman or white friend. They're flying Corsairs in Korea. True story. Uh, the black guy gets shot down on, a, on an, a ground attack run. He ditches in this field. And his white wingman, because it's got to be about black and white guys, can't be about Americans, can't be about, you know, naval aviators. No, 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 we got to tell this story. At least it's not one of these divisive stories give them credit for that so the so the his friend decides that rather than flying home 
he's going to land in this field because his buddy can't get out of his airplane. He's pinned in there and the plane's starting to burn. So he lands his Corsair, runs over, tries to get his friend out of the um, plane. He can't. And they send a rescue helicopter to pick him up and they can't get him out of the plane and he dies of either wounds or, or hypothermia or both or whatever. The wingman manages to get home and he's awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And, and the actors were superb, but the story had just been run through the deflavorizer. And I, and I don't know why it didn't appeal to me. I don't know why I felt so meh about it. It's an amazing story, true story. And the people who made the movie had good intentions. I think they overdid the, the, the CG a little bit, but nothing like on the level of Flyboys of Midway. And then I realized, you know what it is? You know why it's not working? This thing's not working? It's not working because, because I don't believe what's happening in the ready room in the squadron room and that's where all the story is the stuff that happens in the air is not the story in devotion both the crew's quarters but especially that squadron briefing room is so dark that you cannot imagine finding your way to a seat in there without an usher and a flashlight it's nearly pitch black and I guess that's because the director thought, you know, oh, we got to have this be really moody and really dark and stuff. It's so bloody dark that people can't see where they're going. And this is the thing that makes me nuts about, about Hollywood, makes me nuts about them, is that they always have to do these things that just plain, maybe on some level, make some kind of sense on an artistic scale, but they just ruin the... the um, authenticity of it by trying to make it look so damn you know so damn dramatic it's like, well you know what it's not a dramatic place you idiot it's it's an extraordinarily boring place it's 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 a it's got steel walls there's no windows there's big chairs there's fluorescent lights it's not about how the room looks it's about what are they saying and if you're going to make this thing so dark that i don't believe that they're even in this place it's like my god man can somebody get a light in here please so I didn't, so I didn't believe in the pilots. I thought the, I thought the characters were, were, were corny, and I thought they were just doing too much of that kind of, you know, tear in your eye kind of, you know. I just didn't buy it. And if you don't buy the characters, then you're out of luck. Um, so uh, that's Flyboys Midway, and we're not doing that. And now, after I pitched his own story to him, uh. Steve Skinner, I didn't hear from him for about almost three weeks, and I thought, well, I've done it now. Uh, I've, I've somehow managed to convince him that that the way to tell this Frank Luke story is to give him a talking dog. Uh, and then it turned out he was away for a while, and he came back and said, no, it was really great talking to you. It was great talking to a writer who really gets it. And he said something that really shook me up, actually. It was a really interesting conversation. He said, he said, if you're going to do the, the story of Frank Luke, any screen time that takes place in the air while he's flying is a waste of time. And I thought, well, now, well, now. He says, all about what happened in the squadron room. It's all about the dynamic between Luke, his commanding officer, 
the guy who was the commanding officer's commanding officer, Rickenbacker, what do we do with this insecure rebel? What do we do with him? That's the story. And I said, well, damn, man. Then it looks like we're not going to be making flyboys after all. I mean, I got that from his book, but I didn't get, I didn't, I was more interested in the in the sequential stuff because I Frank Luke was the second one of America's Forgotten Heroes. However, when he said that, I realized, yes, 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 I see, I see, I see. Absolutely. So I immediately said, okay, well, two things. First of all, first of all, I couldn't agree more. I completely get it. But on the other hand, this is a movie and we're not making my dinner with Frank Luke. So he's heroic because because he did he deserves to be remembered because he did heroic things yes well he did heroic things because he was because of his personality and he really had you know no choice and we were going back and forth on this it's like steve he has to have had choice if he doesn't have choice there's no agency if he if if he didn't make a decision then then he's just cattle going down to shoot an abattoir is there's no there's no heroism if he's not if he's not capable of of deciding to do something and we, we've got to show how horrific this was and how dangerous and we just started really started to get this thing synced up so the thing that impressed me the most about that conversation and made me happiest was I knew we had a great true story and that that true story had not only a lot of tremendous adventure and visual excitement, but also that I knew that Frank Luke was a really interesting guy. The thing that put my hook, put, put the hooks into me about Frank Luke was he used to be a bare knuckle fighter in uh, Phoenix copper mines. And when he decided he didn't want to do that anymore and he wanted to find a way to make a living, instead of opening up a bordello or a bar, what you'd expect a bare knuckle fighter to do. He opened up a dancing school for um, minors. He taught minors how to dance because the male to female ratio there was something like 30 to one. And these grizzly old minors all wanted wives and they wanted any competitive advantage they could get. Um, so Frank Luke not only is dancing with these minors, Frank Luke wore a dress and dance with these miners. And nobody's gonna give Frank Luke any grief because he's the bare knuckle champion uh, of this um, of this uh, mining community. And the second I read that, I thought that's just so unlikely. It's just so unexpected. So this is gonna be a hell of a great story. And and the drama in the in the squadron buildings is going to be 90% of why this is not going to be flyboys and the other 10% of it is going to well the other 10% of it may or may not be out of my control but obviously we'll have to use a, a significant amount of CG but the CG has to be done the way that they did it in Maverick the CG that they used in Maverick never ever looked like a shot that you couldn't get from a real camera and that's the key to it. So they used real aircraft whenever they could, and when they couldn't use real aircraft, they used CG. But if, they, if they've if they got these jets coming down the, the valley or whatever, 
They didn't have the just go one pass one side, one of the other. And no, it's like tracking shot of these jets going through the valley and it looked like real airplanes. And that's why it worked because you couldn't get the camera into the miraculous places that you can with CG. So the whole thing has to be shot. The CG has to be shot so that there's not a shot in there that doesn't look like it was taken from another airplane shooting the, the, the action. Because your brain... That's, um, that's a Mr. Plinkett line, right? You may not have noticed it, but your brain did. So, um, anyway, uh, I know this is kind of a Stratosphere Studios kind of talk, but it's also about history and, and, uh, and you know, where we're going. So, uh, I um, um, signed the contract, and so off we go. This will be nothing compared to the work on empire of terror and for a guy who didn't have a warm and warm-up uh, topic who never does there's 90 minutes gone uh so why don't we get to the questions um but uh yeah, frank luke uh, and by the way uh, the book uh, is called the stand it's by uh, stephen skinner it's stephen skinner wrote stephen skinner yes it's signed i'm done i'm, I'm doing it uh Stephen Skinner wrote about Frank Luke. I'm writing. I, I'm interested in him as a storyteller, and as as a pilot, but as a storyteller. What Stephen Skinner did was he wrote about it because to him it was a detective story. What happened on Frank Luke's final flight was one of those unsolved mysteries of World War One, and and S Stephen Skinner is a is a enthusiast. He hangs out with pilots and historians, and he he went to 20 years' worth of trouble, including going to France repeatedly, to, to absolutely conclusively show exactly where and when Frank Luke did what he did and solved that mystery of that final flight. He just went after it like a mystery writer, and I think that's awesome, but that's not the story I'm telling. He went to tell the, the, the story of the stand because because um, I'm, I'm back in this again, but I think it needs to be said too. Um, another reason I really like the Frank Luke idea and the reason I wanted to do it as a series of historical movies for feature films for Daily Wire was it was the easiest one to tell. I wanted to do John Paul Jones and I wanted to do Taffy 3 and the Doolittle Raid and and um, Booker T. Washington and all that. But this one would seem like the easiest one. So here's the reason he did The Stand. Yes, I know it's the same as Stephen King's title. Uh, this movie's not going to be called The Stand. Um, so the legend of Frank Luke, and I heard this as a kid because I was in, in American schools, by the way, because even though they weren't, I don't think, nearly as good as uh, British schools I went to, I went to school while they were still educating people here in America. And so I heard the story of Frank Luke when I was in elementary school, I think. And he was the balloon buster. He shot down balloons. And up until I started doing the research on him just a couple years ago, even today, I thought, you know, modern me two, three years ago. Thought, yeah, well, balloon busting, you know, how hard is that compared to shooting down other guys? It's much harder. 
and much more important. But the thing about Frank Luke is, is that the the legend of Frank Luke is, he swore that they'd never take him alive. He gets shot down. This is how I heard the story in elementary school. He's shot down. There's a German patrol approaching. Luke jumps out of the airplane, pulls his uh, Colt, semi-automatic, starts firing at these guys and um, and then this German patrol shoots him dead and there are seven dead Germans there on the ground. That's how I heard the story. Uh, because that's how the story was formed and the story was formed in 1917, 19, oh, sorry, 1918 and that's how they, that's how America wanted its heroes in 1918 and up until the present day. So the question is, what really happened? Well, that didn't happen. Not the way that, that history passed it down to us. So I'm reading this incredible book by Stephen Skinner. And I'm wondering, what, what, how is he going to deal with this? What's he doing? He's making it clear that the historical story as told just plain didn't happen. So I'm thinking, okay, so is this going to be another, yet, another, yet another one of these attempts to um, demythologize our heroes is this what this is and I realized no the reason that Stephen Skinner put that much work into it and the reason that the story put the hook into me so much is that's not what happened what happened is more impressive than that if you really think about it what actually happened, uh, and G.K. Masterson for Super Chat there before I forget, have you been to see or do you plan to see Sound of Freedom? Tim Poole says it's really great story, both story and production-wise. Haven't even heard of it, but um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. So here's, so here, without giving away the whole movie, although I'm about to give away the whole movie, basically what actually did happen was Luke did get shot on his, on his final mission. He got shot. He had to land his airplane. He was wounded. He didn't leap out of the airplane and advance towards the American, uh, towards the oncoming German patrol. He couldn't get out of the plane because he'd been shot through both lungs and, and the blood was filling his lungs. And every time he took a breath, there was less room for air. The blood inside his chest was, was accumulating. So he's having a difficult time breathing and every time he breathes gets more difficult. He's badly, badly wounded and he cannot get out of the airplane one of his shoulders is useless because of the round that he took. And so instead of hopping out of the airplane, he just he just can't move this arm. He can't get out of the airplane. So instead of leaping out the left side, and like you would have getting off a horse and, you know, cowboying out and running after these guys, he manages to crawl up onto the side of the canopy rail, not the way he would normally get out. And instead of swinging his legs out, he can't do that either. He manages to, to, to pull himself up, sit on the edge of a canopy rail, and then fall over backwards, a decent drop, you know, probably five, six foot drop at least, flat on his back into the mud, and then he manages to get to his feet and starts heading for this little little clump of bushes, really not even a copse of trees, right along a little creek. And Steve Skinner has stood right on the spot, and, and I plan to go see that spot because I need to feel it. And, and so Luke is lying on the ground, and it's not a German patrol coming after him. He had landed very close to a German uh, artillery unit. And so soldiers from that, armed soldiers are coming after him, but it's not a patrol. He hears them coming. He's lying on his back there in the mud. 
He's looking up at the sky. He's starting to gray out. I'm sorry, he's lying on his face in the mud, and he's starting to gray out. And somehow, he manages to get his arms underneath him and push himself up to his feet and stand there, and he can hear these guys, and he fires a shot in their direction. Steve Skinner says that by this point, he was probably... He was probably so oxygen-deprived that his vision had gone. He could still hear things. So, poof, fires one round, you know. The villagers hear it. Poof, fires another one. Poof, fires another one. Fires three shots. Doesn't hit anybody. Now the Germans are being a lot more careful, and they come through the woods, and when they find him, he's lying there looking at the sky, and he's dead, and his boots are pointing up at the sky, and there's smoke coiling out of the barrel of his forty-five, which is in his hand. And so, is that a better ending? Is that a more heroic ending than standing up and saying, well, damn you, rotten, you know, hun bastards. This is for you and Kaiser Bill. Bam, 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 bam. Uh, got me. I think it's much more heroic. I think it's much more heroic. And has the benefit of being true. So, that's kind of the meta for me on this. The meta is, well... Roadrider, the second I was trying to think of it, Roadrider just appeared and said, reality is better. Yes, that should be my motto. I think that's my, my mantra. Whenever I do anything that's historical-based, the reality is better than anything I can come up with. It's better than anything anybody else can come up with. And this is the reason that these stories need to be told, because people cannot believe this actually happened. It's better. It's better. The story of Midway was better than what they did to Midway to try to make it more dramatic. You can't make it more dramatic. You can't improve on the story of Taffy 3. You can't improve on the story of, 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 of Spruance turning on the landing lights and Michener, the carrier guy, you know, saying, yeah, all right, well, we got to save our guys. It's much more heroic to me to be lying there in the mud face down and your lungs are filling with blood. You know you've got maybe a minute or two left on this earth. And instead of simply just closing your eyes and going to sleep, which is the thing to do, the easy thing to do, to have the force of will to stand up and and not and, and go out the way you said you were going to go out and shooting in the direction of guys because you're so badly wounded that your eyesight is gone. I mean, he wasn't shot in the eyes. It's just when your when your brain runs out of blood, vision's the first thing that disappears. That's why when you pull out of a steep dive and you take a lot of Jesus pilots black out. They've still got consciousness. The vision's gone. Yes, Roadrunner says it's a last act of defiance. That's exactly what it is. It's a last act of defiance. And we could use a little more actual last acts of defiance in this culture after watching what happened with uh, the pandemic and all the rest of it. A little bit of, uh, of good old American defiance um, is something that this culture could definitely use. And I'm very proud to be able to be a part of it. So that's that. Uh, okay. Now let's trot into the uh, membership den, den of all I have to say about the members forum at billwiddle.com is uh, nowhere will you find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And that's something that all of our members are very, very proud of. Here we go. Let's see what's up. Frank Luke.
the picture of him graduating flight school was taken about nine months before he died and he looks like the son of the man he was going to be in nine months he aged so much in those nine months he, he looked like the pictures that you see of Frank Luke there's really two of them he looks like this 35 40 year old man who's seen too much because he was two years earlier than that he's 18 year old kid and he's got a little baby fat on big smile happy ready to go before he before he got into this meat grinder flying in airplanes that are made out of fabric and wood with no parachutes uh, and if you were lucky in that war you got killed by a bullet instantly that's not usually what happened usually your wings came off and you got to ride the airplane down into the ground or you're on fire and you got to ride the airplane into the ground significant number of pilots in that war uh, used their revolvers on the way down because they were on fire that's not something they talked about a lot but that's something we're going to show you know if you're on your way down to your certain death because your wings are off and you're on fire I think I'd probably use the revolver too all right so let's see what we got here that's not a decision I would like to face mind you and uh, and I'm not likely to have to face it thanks to the people that actually did go and face it sorry I've been talking and not thinking we just got to do this this way here in a second How do you not tell these? Well, I know why they don't tell these stories. I know why. But that doesn't mean we have to like it, and it doesn't mean we have to go along with it. And I think you tell these stories realistically, you're going to get an audience, an enthusiastic audience. And I'm betting the farm on that. And I know I'm right on this one. Uh, sorry, here we go. Member forum. Look at these scallywags and malcontents and desperados. Miscreants is the word I'm looking for. Uh, okay, here we go. And thanks again to uh, to everybody, uh, to GK and, and um, Marusha and Henry and all the people that, you know, take care of this thing. Uh, for free because they're just excellent people so we're very grateful just taking a look here okay all right let's see what we can do with these um, we're gonna have to do one to a customer here And we'll start with Marusha Dark, because uh, she's a five-star member, and he or she has done a wonderful job here. So here we see what we got. Um, the topic is uh, cis slurs are censorship, because Elon Musk has banned the word cis from Twitter, which is I have mixed feelings about. I don't like banning any words on Twitter, but I do like watching the people who've been trying to shut everybody else up get shut up for a change. Uh, 
strange times we live in. Uh, Bill, I know you have no love for the word cis, but I also know you've said before that if someone makes a reasonable case, you're willing to amend your views. This is not to excuse the attacks on normal people by the woke left. I get that. But personally, I'm concerned about Elon calling cis a slur on Twitter, and my hope is that he won't censor it because while cis can be a slur, it's also a descriptor. One that goes back to the 1800s, and it just means on this near side, whereas trans means on the far side. The same prefix as in the transplant or transatlantic or transhumanist, of which I consider myself one. And there's more to this, but let me just address one thing here. This is what the trans people are saying. I'll get to the rest of your question, and, and I understand that this is a partially read question, okay? So I'm... I just want to answer this while it's fresh in my mind, and what you write next may completely undo everything, but let me just deal with this real fast. Trans activists say cis is not a slur, that it's a term that's been in common usage, and so on, and there is one thing that I would say I am actually an expert in in this world. There's a lot of things I know a bit about and I'm enthusiastic about, but there's one thing I think I am actually an expert in, and that's the English language. And I have never heard the term cis in my life prior to two years ago, ever. I've never heard it. When they started saying cis, I had no idea what they're talking about. This idea that this word is a commonly used word that suddenly people are taking offense to is just, it's just not true. The word cis did not exist in the English language, in usage in the English language, prior to a year or two ago. And, and, and they can say, well, well, you know, this guy coined the term and whatever the hell he coined the term, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It's not, I have never heard that adjective applied to anything, ever. And I know this language. I read a lot and I write a lot. I've never heard of it. Cisalpine, okay. I may have heard the term cisalpine. I never thought about it, but cis is not a term. And the reason that they're using, well, let me read the rest of Marisha's question and then I'll tell you why. Although, even before reading the question, I think we probably agree that banning things is probably not the way to go sometimes it is very satisfying so let's see what else we got here on this question uh, okay um, I put it to you that just as cis can be a slur or a descriptor so too can gay or girl or white boy depending on context and we both be up in arms if those words ever got censored why is this any different in principle apart from the number of people it affects not sure about you but I've been noticing a growing sentiment among people on the right that want to dial the clock back all the way to before gay rights or in some cases women's rights calling these mistakes that led us here. Frankly, I find that alarming, but really, what's to stop it beyond the same hollow promise the left gave that this wouldn't lead to a slippery slope? Also, just as an aside, there's already a term in pop culture for people who only want to date cis people and not trans people. If you're straight, the term in common parlance is super straight, and if you're gay, it's super gay. Well, first of all, trans people find the word super straight to be an abomination of a slur that must be eliminated from the speech they absolutely despise the term and they think it's homophobic transphobic and all the rest of it secondly i'm not going to call myself super straight because i'm straight and i'm not going to call myself a cis man because i'm a man i'm a normal man most of you are normal men and normal women and now we get to the whole reason why they using why this term cis has appeared To some, agree, to some degree, as I said, I don't, uh, I don't believe in banning words as slurs and so on, but in a larger context, what Elon Musk is doing is he is thwarting their strategy. I'll get to the strategy in a second. You say that, um, well, some words can be a descriptor, like gay can be um, either a, a descriptor or a slur. 
same as white boy, true for both of those words, but if I called somebody a screaming faggot, I probably wouldn't get away with it. That's not a term that is uh, generally used as a descriptor. That's a slur. Uh, and so um, I don't really buy that particular aspect of the argument. If the, if the term had been in common usage before, that's one thing, but it wasn't. Now we get to the point of this whole argument. <laughs> John Frost says, I'm a sissy. I have, John, I've had my head so close to that. I've just been circling around it. And I just said, there's something there. I couldn't put my finger on it. And you nailed it for me. Yes, we're all sissies. That's what we are. That's what we should call ourselves. I think it's hilarious, frankly. I'm not, if you look, if you're going to call me sis, <laughs> this, I'm, I'm loving this better by the second. John Frost wins the internet for the day. Uh, yes, next time the subject comes up, I'm gonna. If somebody says, "Well, you're a cis male," I say, "Please." I find the term "cis male" to be offensive. If you're going to refer to me as cis, I insist that you call me a sissy. We're all a bunch of sissies. All us straight people. We're all just a bunch of sissies. I love it. 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 One of my favorite things I have ever heard on the internet ever. And you win the internet for the day, sir. Thank you for that valuable, valuable weapon mimetic weapon that's right we're all sissies all of us all of us straight people what are you guys you bunch of sissies yeah that's what we are all right so the, to the point right sis he says dave olson for the putting a little icing on the cake there uh sis he's we're sis he's we're just sissies we're all just a bunch of sissies and that's what's happening to the american culture by the way western culture you're right all of the straight men are just a bunch of sis he's we're all sissies all of us all right so here we go Oh, C.P. Tomes, putting down a marker. I am a thermonuclear ultra cis MAGA knuckle dragging heavily armed a hole, and a, and a racist too. All the rest, all the rest, cis hers, all the rest. Okay, well, here's the point, right? The term cis has to be fought tooth and nail, and the reason it has to be fought tooth and nail is because the term has been introduced in the language for a very specific political objective, political goal, and that's why it's there. And here's what the political goal is. Prior to this recent bout of insanity that we've been suffering, we would say that there were two kinds of humans. There is, in fact, one human binary, and that is sex, your, your, your sex. You notice these people don't call themselves transsexuals. The offensive tranny, who I admire very much on YouTube, one of my favorite channels, that person is a transsexual. Transgender can mean anything because gender means anything. As you well know, there's 195 of them or something like that. New ones invented every day. It's, it's, it's really, in terms of science, it's really the bleeding edge of, of discovery. So what's going on with this term cis? Well, prior to this, uh, this enforced mass uh, psychological delusion, there were two kinds of human beings. In fact, two kinds of animals virtually all animals. In fact, I can't think of any multi I can't think of a multicellular animal that's an exception. There are males and females. Everything else is on a spectrum. These people are saying they're non-binary. The only thing binary about the human species is male or female. XX, XY. That's the only binary thing. Height, skin color, intelligence, speed, strength, all of this stuff is on a is on an infinitely gray spectrum, but the only thing that's binary is male and female, and this is what the world has been dealing with for, I don't know, 250,000 years. We've been modern humans, but 
250,000 minutes ago, somebody decided that wasn't going to be good enough. So what the difference is, is that the reason the word cis has been introduced to the language is because the political objective is to change the binary. It's no longer about men and women. It is, you, you, prior to this movement, you, you were either a male or a female. Now, you're either cis or trans. That's the new binary. You're either cis or trans. You see? Male and female, I'm not a biologist, and I'm certainly trying to, you know, follow the science, but male and female has a scientific basis to it. And so what they do with the language, as they always do with the language, is they weaponize the language so that we will no longer be thinking about men and women anymore now that the classes of people will be cis and trans. And the reason that cis has been invented is if you agree to buy into this, if you buy into this trap, of using the word cis, what they have accomplished, whether you realize it or not, is they have made cis and trans into equal, equal weight. They're both perfectly normal. Could it could have just been flip of a coin? It depends on. You see, you see, your gender, what you used to call your sex, male or female. No, that's not biologically determined. That was assigned to you at birth by a doctor, and maybe the doctor was having a bad day, so maybe he assigned you as a male when really should have assigned you by female. Don't worry about the body parts. Don't worry about the chromosomes. We are going to reconstruct reality in our image. This is what the progressives want to do, and the reason they're going for this one is because it is the obvious, the single most obvious thing in front of our faces. If they can get you to take a knee to this issue, this is why they're fighting on this hill, if they can get you to take a knee to the most obvious thing in front of your face, the difference between men and women, if they can get you to agree that this is just an opinion and that there's no external reality about men and women, then they win. Everything after that is easy compared to this. If they can convince you to take a knee on this one, then they win, which is why I'm not going to play the game. I'm just not. And why, while I am against censorship, I find Elon's decision to make to ban this word from Twitter, I find this to be strong evidence that Elon understands what's going on here in this in this culture war. He understands why this word is being introduced to the language, and he's simply saying, "No, not gonna not gonna let that happen on this social media platform that I own." I am going to declare it a slur. Do I think it's a slur? I don't actually think it's a slur. I don't think it's personally a slur, but I take offense at it. So I guess it is a slur. If a trans person came up to me and said, well, you're a cis male, I said, no, I'm not. I'm actually just a normal male. I'm a normal man. You don't get to define me. I find your language offensive and heterophobic and deeply, deeply problematic. You heterophobe. Um, so, um, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to. They're they're trying to equalize it. Normalize it is the word. For those of you who've had the uh, in, uh, mixed experience of of following uh, Dylan Mulvaney closely, um, prior to Dylan's breakout uh, success, and to his credit, JT and Odin's Ben was on was on the Dylan Mulvaney thing easily six months before Dylan Mulvaney became a national phenomenon of the many yeah I've never heard the term heterophobic before I just kind of came up with it on my own but that's really what it is right you heterophobes um, so 
when Dylan was doing his uh, 300, you know, day 97 of girlhood, he's this stick-thin gay man. Yes, you heard me, YouTube, and I don't care anymore. I just don't care. So do what you want to do. And he's wearing like a, a, a top and, and shorts. And he's at the beach as a woman. And he's explaining to the audience, saying, I was there and people were looking at me. And I was wondering, why were they looking at me? I thought I looked pretty good. And I realized they were looking at the bulge. Not much of a bulge, but nevertheless, there it is. Women are not supposed to have bulges there, and Dylan does. So Dylan breaks into song. He starts singing about normalize the bulge, which made my skin crawl off of my body and 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 climb into the closet. I looked like I looked like a video game character. I looked like a skinned human being. My skin just got so it just left just left the room, and I'm stuck there, just covered in slime and muscle material. My skin crawled off my body hearing him hearing him sing this. But but what he's saying. What he's saying is exactly, precisely correct. He's precisely on target with this. This is exactly what he wants to do. They want to normalize female bulges. They want to normalize it. They want you. They, they if they can get you to believe that 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 females have a penis, then it's game over. It's game over. If they can get you to buy into that, then anything else they try to sell you is cake. After this, you see cake this is why this issue has to be fought and this is the hill that we're going to fight on and die on but we're not going to die in this hill this is the hill we're going to win on because this is a bridge too far for them a hill too far people are not buying this people don't want anything to do with it their strongest allies let's not forget the democratic party is powered by the votes of blacks to some degree hispanics and especially white liberal women that's their base and the progressives in the Democratic Party are forcing this on society, thinking that it's going to bring their allies with them. However, it turns out that in their heart of hearts and in, and in their little private moments along with their cats, white liberal women don't like being called birthing people or uh, chest feeders or, um, or people with latest term. Uh, people with a bonus hole. That's a term that the trans community is now trying to use to describe the female anatomy. It's a bonus. How about that? They don't like it. Straight women don't like it. And now, as I pointed out in the last uh, right angle from last week, I heard the term cis lesbians, which may sound to you like it doesn't make sense, but it does make sense. According to their language rules, if you are a lesbian, we have to define you you can't just be a woman who is attracted to women. That's a lesbian, and everybody knows what that is, so that's got to go. You are a cis lesbian. And the difference between a cis lesbian, the reason you have to call them a cis lesbian instead of just a lesbian is because men who transition to become women and who are then attracted to women are also lesbians, you see? So there are cis lesbians and there are trans lesbians. I'm not making this up. This is this is this is the current battle du jour trans the trans activists are saying that men who identify as women and who are attracted to women are lesbians we all clear on this so this is why this is why they are pushing this so hard. This is why Dylan Mulvaney is at the White House. This is why 
the president of the United States is talking about trans people being the, the, the foundation of the country and the best people we have. And this is why um, companies will ruin their brand and ruin their sales in order to get that ESG score, which is more important than the sales. Or if it wasn't, they wouldn't do it. Everybody knows that this is going to cost you sales. So why do companies keep doing it? There's no other explanation other than the fact that their best financial case is to lose sales rather than get a low uh, ESG score. Why does the NBA, why did the NBA back Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee on the national anthem? National Football League is composed, the, the fans, football fans are the most patriotic Americans as a large group that I can think of in the country. I cannot think of a larger group of primarily patriotic people mostly men than American football fans. The NFL fan base is the most patriotic large group of people in the country. I'm not saying they're the only patriots. I'm saying in terms of just sheer numbers, that's where I would go. NASCAR, okay, NASCAR is bigger. You're right. NASCAR wins. I'm, NFL is second. Completely right. Got it. But with that said, why would the NFL do this? Why would the NFL do this incredible financial harm to themselves there's no other explanation for it it has to be in their financial interest to do it and that means that stuff is going on backstage in terms of what their score is and how the finances work and and we live in a world where money doesn't exist anymore when you owe 33,000 billion dollars that will never be repaid money is no longer money we're not dealing with the world that we think we're dealing with here this isn't a conspiracy there's just obvious fact you cannot owe 33,000 billion dollars and keep adding thousands of billions of dollars every year and have and tell me that money still means what we think money means it doesn't it's not I don't know what it is but it's not money so all of this stuff is an indication that this is coming from this is not a grassroots movement grassroots movement it isn't a grassroots movement. It's the opposite of the grassroots movement. It's a top-down movement. The people in power, like the so-called president of the United States, are, are forcing Americans to buy this. And things like the NCAA are forcing Americans to buy this. And the progressives and the liberals who spent their entire year life fighting for uh, things like Title IX and, and, and girls being able to compete in sports and stuff, now find themselves having to cheer the fact that a male just beat the living daylights out of their daughter who's been training to be an Olympic swimmer for 15 years and now they have to stand there and applaud the fact that her best time is 30 seconds slower than this grown man who's grown his hair out and feels like a woman today. So this is why they have to do their double think. Got two super chats here as a sacred order of nightly valor. I keep seeing 1,000. Oh, and it's a thousand yen. I thought, well, that's thank you anyway. Uh, sex and gender are two different Latin words. Sex comes from seco, as in section, or this half of a category. Gender comes from gene, meaning as born, as created, as in Genesis. I understand there's a difference between sex and gender. I do. I just still think that there's two sexes and there's two genders. Well, four maybe 
there's no question that sex is male and female. There's no question about it. Every time people argue, well, how do you define a woman? It's like, look, just stop because people can have body parts lopped on, created. Uh, accidents can happen. None of that. I've heard Matt Walsh say it's potential. That's a good argument, but no. Any cell in your body, any cell in your body, any cell in your body, your fingernails, your hair, anything will go to a lab, instantly tell you whether you're a male or female because of the chromosomes, period. That's the definition. Don't let anybody trap you in anything else. They're saying, well, are we, so your definition of a woman, is it somebody who gives birth? Well, what if a woman's had a hysterectomy? Does that mean they're not a woman? No, I never said that. No, that's not my definition. XXXY is my definition because I know what you're going to do with it. We know what a man and a woman is. We all know. Everybody knows. But I'm not going to fall into your rhetorical trap. I'm not going to walk into your kill box. So if you want to play this game of pretending like we don't know the most obvious thing that everybody does know, then fine, I'll play that game with you. My definition of a woman is my biological definition of a woman because it turns out I am an amateur biologist. So I'm going to go with XX and XY. Yes. Any, any other questions about this? Yes. We're talking about XX, XY. Nothing you say has anything to do with anything. That's the definition. And that's where we're going. Now, if you don't want to follow the science, that's your business. Uh, here's another uh, super chat from Cody Fett. There's another explanation, Bill. The executives and marketers spent 10 years on Twitter, and they hire people from leftist colleges. It's worse than money. It's social proof. Yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true that there is a strong social pressure on these rich. The, the Democratic Party is now the party of the, of the super rich, and it has been for quite a long time. And so... This is quite a bit of a change. The Democratic Party, if the Republican Party as a group of people, as a political entity, had fundamental competence, I mean sixth grade competence in anything, we should be able to mop the floor with these people because the Democratic Party brand is the party of the little guy and they have not been the party of the little guy for a long time. And we are too stupid to pick up that football and run down the field unopposed and spike it. We're just too dumb to figure that out. They're not the party of the little people. They're the party of the super rich. That's who the Democrats are. They're the super rich and the super crazy. That's the coalition. Anyway, yes, there's a great deal of social proof and, 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 the, and the executives of these companies want to go to their cocktail parties in the Hollywood Hills and in New York skyscrapers and talk about all of the, how progressive they are. Absolutely true, but you cannot get away from stockholder Revenge, you cannot go out there and lose $27 billion like, like Anheuser-Busch has and survive unless there is a financial upside to it. And there is. And the same thing goes for the NFL. They can do all the virtue signaling they want to. I completely agree with your point. But you can't tank a company for that. And... And so that tells me that there is something, there, there is a financial motive for the woke, for the woke phenomenon that we are not seeing and that it has to do with very large scale financing behind the scenes because it's guys like BlackRock who are, who are, who are the ones who are creating the, this score in the first place. The score didn't exist two, three years ago, or if it did, it, nobody knew about it. So this whole World Economic Forum thing, it makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist, and I guess I am because unlike before, when I was wrong about this, I didn't have any evidence. Now I have more evidence than I know what to do with. I have tons of evidence that this is going on, actual evidence, so now I'm a believer of this kind of thing. 
I changed my mind based on the preponderance and the, and the credibility of the evidence that I've seen since 2020. So something is, is, something is going on here. Um, and, and the cis, the, the, the cis, the word cis is the, is the sharp point of the spear designed to make us surrender reality. If we buy into this game, we lose. This is one of those examples that Andrew Breitbart was just so clear on. It's, it's, it's um, war games, right? The only way to win this is to not play the game. If you get into this game, if you start, if you start doing that, you lose. Eric Blake says a lot of this has to do with the CCP and, and China. Yes. If you think that a company has a lot of influence, if you think of a company that has big money, Apple or somebody like that, right? They might be, um, th there was a time before Elon came along, but there was a time mm, 10, 5, 6, 7, 8 years ago when it looked like Apple was going to be the first trillion dollar company. Uh, I don't know if it ever got to that point. I don't believe there is a trillion dollar company yet, but in any event, trillion dollar company, that's a big deal. BlackRock has allegedly got um, $10 trillion of, of uh, capital at its disposal. That's a big money too. And the only thing that makes that money look small is a country, is how much money a country has. And when you've got China as the second biggest economy in the world, now you're talking about trillions of dollars at your disposal, not just billions, trillions. Oh, Apple just peaked at over three trillion in market cap. Well, I'm obviously way behind the times. In any event, yes, I'm wrong. I'm I'm behind this, the times on this one. It doesn't really matter. Three trillion dollars is a lot of money, but it's but the only thing that makes that look like small change is the amount of money available to a nation that has the second largest GDP in the world. And that's basically what's going on right now. If you really want to step back, I haven't really thought of it this way, but take a step back and then go take two or three more steps back. Okay, so SpaceX is not yet a trillion dollar company. I was just playing wrong about that. That's fine. Take two or three steps back and, and think about what we're seeing in front of our eyes here. What's going on right now in America is a silent mimetic war, a war of ideas between the biggest economy in the world and the second biggest economy in the world. The second biggest economy in the world has launched an offensive, a mimetic societal, corrosive uh, destabilization of the largest economy in the world because even though it is costing them trillions of dollars, it is a brilliant investment on their part. This is, I've never put it quite so clearly before, I've never thought about it quite so clearly, but what is clear to me for a long time is if you're China, you can't catch the United States militarily. You can't. We have been spending $600 billion a year or something like that for 50 years. China cannot catch us militarily. Never. Never. So China will never have 12 carrier battle groups. Ever. They don't. It's not even a question of not having the money. They don't have the expertise. They don't know how to do it. They don't have land sea operations. They don't have combined, they don't have combined command and control structure. Culturally, they will never have them. So what do they do about us having, about the largest economy having 12 carrier uh, battle groups, just as one example of our, of our military power? Well, 
if it turns out that you can create a society where people don't want to serve on those carrier groups, or if they do, they're determined to, to sink them or sabotage them because they're so convinced that the flag that they're supposedly fighting for is so evil, then it doesn't matter if you have 12 carrier battle groups or three or 3,000. If they're not going to be used because you have corrupted the morality of the people in the largest economy in the world, then your investment is enormously productive. In other words, they don't have to spend the money on getting 12 carrier battle groups. For much less money than that, they can make sure that we don't use ours or can't use ours. That's the, that's the meta. And this is me just speculating. This Chinese uh, operational uh, report that came out a couple years ago it was talking about how to defeat the United States. They openly admitted they could never catch us militarily. So they were talking about things like this. They were talking about things like biological weapons. Imagine that. They were talking about things like uh, propaganda. They were talking about things like subversion. They are talking about things like reinventing history, talking about changing the culture. These are investments in them. And when people say, well, why would China do that? Well, China just wants to buy things, right? So Hollywood's just catering them to, no, it's not, they're not being passive about this. China's not saying we don't want to buy that, so we're not going to buy that, so make us something that we want. That's what it looks like on the outside. Hollywood is saying, well, we'll make movies that make China happy because we want the China market. That's what it looks like at first glance, but it's not that passive. China is, is not just sitting there saying, well, we want this, we don't want that. No, China is saying we are going to deploy our our national, our GNP, we're going to deploy our GNP to achieve this goal of subverting the United States of America. That's how we're going to win. We're going to win by making sure that America falls apart. And they've been very successful at it. Unfortunately for them, like all of our enemies, they have grossly misunderestimated our uh, ability to um, the, the fundamental strength of this country. So, they have allies, like, as uh, I.L. Pink points out, uh, Dr. Fauci. So, Dr. Fauci decides for whatever um, megalomaniacal reasons that he wants to make fatal viruses out of viruses that are not normally fatal. There's going to be some good reason for that, but he says it's so we can come up with vaccines. Okay, I don't believe that, but let's take him at his word. He decides he wants to do this gain-of-function research, and America, still having some elements of being a free country, elects a Congress that says, we don't think this is a good idea. And despite all the odds, this is years ago, tells Dr. Fauci, no, you can't do that kind of research in America because we find that to be dangerous and certainly not worth whatever potential risk um, might be there. Uh, so what does Dr. Fauci do? Well, he conducts the research in China, why is it that China is the government of China, the Wuhan Virology Institute does exist. That is where the virus came from. And there's no question about that. And there was no question about that in, in April of 2020, by the way. Um, so what does that say? Forget about what it says about Fauci. We already know what it says about Fauci. You can't do this work in America, Dr. Fauci. It's too dangerous. Oh, well, if it's too dangerous, I should stop doing it then. I don't, want to, I don't want to wipe out the world. No, he doesn't say that. He says, well, if I can't do it in America, I'll do it in China. But what does it say about China? That's the really the big issue here. What does it say about China that they are not only willing but enthusiastic 
about doing the kind of research that the American government has said is illegal in this country because it's too dangerous. What does that say about them? I know what it says about Fauci. What does it say about China? Well, what it says about China is a, a worldwide shutdown hurts China badly, but China has totalitarian control over their own people, and this is just a exercise for them. The people it really hurts are the number one economy of the world, and especially, most especially, the fluke of a president who is not playing ball with the Chinese. That's who's going to get hurt by releasing a bioweapon. That's what's going to happen, is this man who actually stood up to China, who actually took America's side in this argument, this president of the United States, was well on his way to winning a second term because the economy was a humming, and nobody even knew that Joe Biden was in the race. And then the next thing you know, there's this worldwide pandemic. China is cutting, this is historical fact, not speculation here. China, for four weeks, said no one can fly from Wuhan to any other part of China. It's locked down. There's a disease there. There's a virus. However, while you cannot fly from Wuhan to Beijing or Shanghai, you can fly from Wuhan to Los Angeles. And they did for about a month. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? So, this is an investment for them. It's an investment. And, and it is an investment that totals tens of trillions of dollars. And so, we need to... Understand that's what's going on. And we also, and this is not pleasant, this is not pleasant. We also have to understand that the people who have rightfully generated so much hatred among us, people who are trying to destroy this country, these progressives, we have to understand that to a large degree, they are being manipulated and on some level, it's not their fault. I'm not saying that they don't that they're not responsible for their actions. And I'm saying this isn't easy. But, but what I am saying is when you realize that the objective is to split the country in the middle and have one half of the country hate the other, you got to recognize that by doing that, you're playing into their hands. As much as it pains me to say so, I need to constantly walk back from this sense of the progressive are killing everything and just say to myself, no, what's killing everything is, is this artificial division Scott told a story on the backstage show uh, this week for members only. He was talking about being on his uh, regular walk, and it was uh, Independence Day, and somebody planted all those little flags all around, which are great and, and nice and patriotic, except those little flags fall over, and that can be a problem for people who care about the flag. And Scott said he was walking along, and he it was late for getting back to do the uh, right angle shows, and he saw saw a man who was putting those flags back in the ground and they looked up at each other and Scott said, thank you. And the guy said, gave him a look like, well, sure, what else am I supposed to do? And then Scott says, and, and it was a black guy. And I said, well, of course it's a black guy because it's not a black guy, it's another American. You get out of an elevator, you hold the door at 7-11 for somebody and you, somebody says, thank you. And you realize all of this stuff is, is, is imposed on us. It's, 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 it's ginned up. Now, that's not to say it's not taking effect. 
these Gen Zers are convinced that they that they live in Nazi Germany, and I really want them to spend a few days in Nazi Germany just so they can realize uh, that. And and there we go. And that's why I wrote Empire of Terror because I want people to understand how these murderers operate by convincing people that they're working in their best interest until they have enough power to drop that facade and then start killing people. Uh, Cody Fett for Super Chat says, also Freedom Alternative a few months ago came up with the receipts that the biggest financial involvement in woke hiring was with the HR managers. Yes. HR. So this thing, so this disease, it's kind of like AIDS in a way. Um, Now, I, I don't know if Lord Bios is here to correct me. It's like flying solo for the first time. I think I'm more or less correct when I say this, that AIDS never, no one ever died of AIDS, that AIDS didn't kill anybody. What AIDS did was destroyed the immune system so that other, other diseases that normally we fight off very easily kill you, like pneumonia or, or certain other diseases that normally wouldn't be a factor. So while AIDS is responsible for your death, if you didn't have AIDS, you wouldn't have died. It wasn't actually AIDS that killed you. It was the AIDS that took your defenses down and let something else kill you. So that's basically what I think happens if you look back at it. I don't think, I think China, I think that the AIDS came internally and that China is the, it's taken advantage of it. And if I really, really want to trace the roots back on this, because when you said HR, I realized, yes, uh, really starting to be clearer to me now. And then I thought, okay, when did HR appear? When when did I first hear about HR? Because there, there was never an HR department in companies before. If you had a problem with the employee, you talked to the supervisor about it. You talked to his boss. You didn't send him down the hall. So when did HR actually start happening? Why? Where, where did HR come from? And looking back on it, I realized that this is a, this is a domestic disease. HR happened because of lawsuits. That's what brought HR into being. Frivolous lawsuits. When people started suing companies, that's when this whole thing happened. When we stopped, when companies stopped fighting back on suits that they know were, that they knew were false. Somebody makes a false accusation of sexual harassment. This is the 80s now, right? Somebody accuses you of having inappropriately put your hand inside their knee, and you didn't do it. But they're taking you to court to prove that they did because they want money. And so you, in a healthy society, in a sane society, we would have gone to court, would have won that case because the burden of proof is on them. They couldn't prove it because it didn't happen. And then we would have, they would not have won the case, they would not have won the money, they wouldn't have gotten rich off of it, neither would the uh, lawyers that brought the case, and then countersuit for defamation, if we had done that, then we would be fine. But that's not what we did, right? We didn't do the right thing, we did the smart thing. So, what happens? This story goes back to the mid-80s. My, my dear friend, my second father, Jerry Stipp, who was really a, an, another dad to me, told me this happened to him in his company. And, and he said, 
I, I just I just kept saying we got to go to court on this, and he kept saying our lawyers are telling me again and again and again, Jerry, here's what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Okay, we know that this didn't happen, but if you decide to fight this, it's going to take four or five years of your undivided attention. It's going to cost you millions, if not tens of millions of dollars. And when it goes to trial, you are likely to lose because people will buy the emotional argument over evidence. This is the reality of the world we live in. You can do what you want to. It's your company. But our advice as your attorneys is to settle this thing. And so he did. And so he did. Not because it was easy. He didn't care about being easy. He, he was dedicated to the truth. He was dedicated to being right. The thing that, that convinced him to settle was the fact that it wasn't about evidence. He knew he was in the right. He knew he could win a trial that was based on evidence. But society becomes so infantilized, even in the mid-80s, that if somebody comes in on the, on, the, on the stand and starts to cry, then they're gonna win because that's how soft people have gotten, how, how, how sen sentimental we are, not or sentimentalist we are. So, people start realizing it's a quick, a get-rich-quick scheme is to sue the company that you work for. If you're unhappy with something, quit, accuse them of something, find an attorney who's going to get a third of this money automatically. He brings the case. They take the case to the, to the company that's innocent and say, we're suing you for sexual harassment, blah, 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 blah. The company makes the same calculation that I just explained. The person says, we want a million dollars for damages. The company says, we'll give you $25,000, take it or leave it. They take it. And now we're in a situation where every single corporation in America realizes the vulnerability that they have to this kind of extortion and blackmail because that's exactly what it is. It is extortion and blackmail. But that's the world, so they decide, what can we do to defend ourselves? And the defense is, we will have a human resources department. What? Yes. Well, what is that? Well, we're going to spend the effort, the time, and the money to pay people who don't do anything, who don't produce anything for the company. They don't, they don't produce anything. If you're making track shoes, they're not stitching soles together they're not manufacturing nylon they're not lacing shoes they don't do anything it's just it's just a drain it's a financial drain it costs money to pay these people but in the long run it saves us money because if we have an hr department when somebody comes with a complaint you see we will be able to say in our defense well if this was happening why did you not take it to hr if this actually happened why didn't you go to this person whose only job is to make sure that this doesn't happen? Why did you suddenly just spring it on us in court without talking to HR about it? And that's a, actually, it turns out, a pretty, pretty effective defense against this kind of thing, right? So I didn't say right. I'm going to stop doing that. It's a pretty good defense against this kind of thing. So companies start developing these HR departments. And the bigger you get, the more you have to have. And now you realize, okay, so what the HR department is, is essentially it's a fig leaf. It is a, it is a virtue signal for a potential jury to increase your chances of winning a, a sexual harassment case or whatever case, right? 
damn it, or, or whatever case. We know we're going to be sued by people who we didn't wrong. We know they're going to come after us. We're going to have an HR department, which will be our legal defense. Why didn't you come to HR when this started? And we could have done something about it. Good point. But now HR is our shield against social injustice because that's what the appeal is. Oh, you, you sexually harassed me or you discriminated against me or you, you fired me because I'm black or you, or you did this or this or this. So not only do we need an HR department, we need an HR department that is as socially progressive and liberal as we can possibly make it. Because the more liberal our HR department is and the more virtue signaling we do by having things like our gay pride day and decorating our building with the flags and all the rest of it, that improves our legal defense in court if somebody comes and says, you fired me because I'm gay or because I'm trans. What do you mean we fired you because you're trans? We just had our gay pride day. We had gay flags all over our building here at Acme uh, 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 you know, manufacturing where we, where we make our earthquake pills. We have, we have, our, we have our, our gay flags everywhere. We not only have an HR department, we have an HR department that is aggressively making sure that nobody feels uncomfortable here. And so companies now are not run by the CEO. The CEO doesn't run a modern corporation. Neither does the board of directors. Neither do the shareholders. The HR department runs the company. The HR department dictates what policy will be because it has become the perception that if you don't listen to what HR is telling you, you're going to lose your business. Not just your market or your 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 or your or your uh, customers. You're going to lose the business. If you don't have the legal protection of HR, and the more progressive HR is, the better that legal defense is, so get on the stick. And I have never put that together before. That may have been the most important four or five minutes I've said in the last 20 years. That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly right. i got to clip this out, and i got to put it as a separate post because that's it. HR determines the direction of a company. It owns the company. The company listens to the HR department. And if the HR department says, you need to do some really, really progressive advertising, and the board says, or the CEO or the CFO says, oh, we're going to lose a lot of sales that way. Well, if you don't, we'll be open to charges of, of, uh, of um, transphobia, which, as you well know, is epidemic out there right now. And you, we might lose a couple percent of sales in a in a boycott that'll probably just last for, you know, a week or two. But um, this protection will last forever. So you hire your you hire your HR person of color, and you have your uh, seminars where you tell people who've never done anything wrong, who wouldn't dream of sexually harassing a woman and would probably deck somebody who did, you make sure to have constant seminars saying that raping women is bad because when somebody decides to sue us, we will be able to say, well, no, we, we tell our employees that raping women is bad. We told them that on Tuesday. We called the whole staff together. We had a day, day long, or week-long session on why raping women is bad and we didn't make anything that week we just lost money because we think as a company it's really important that we make sure that our employees know that raping women is bad
and here's the world we live in. And China comes along and sees this, and this is what I mean by the AIDS analogy. We did this to ourselves, but when it became clear what we'd manufactured, China looks at this uh, chink in our, if you'll pardon the expression, in our armor, and and put the resources of an entire country into that weakness, that fault line in the armor, and just wedged it in there, put everything in there. Here's a place where you can get your spear through. Push, 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 push. So there you go. That's it. And also related to this, related to this, at, at about the same time as the HR department was the extortion racket, the, the, was the, the grift, the con, that was essentially invented by Jesse Jackson and perfected by him. And here's how that grift and con worked. Jesse Jackson, and it was the Rainbow Coalition, interesting, because he wasn't talking about gay people at the time, it was, you know, people of different colors. What Jesse Jackson realized was he could make a ton of money, personally and for his organization, by blackmailing companies. And the way you would do that is, you would basically say to a bank, hey look, your lending practices here are unfair to black people. The bank says, on the contrary, we are completely colorblind when it comes to, to our banking thing. We make our decision predicated completely on the numbers in front of us. We don't, we don't discriminate against black people. Jesse Jackson says, well, that may or may not be true, but that's not really the point, because the point is, I'm going to have 200 people in your lobby tomorrow, um, and we're all going to be having signs talking about how racist your bank is, and we're going to we're going to close the bank for the day. We're going to make sure that nobody comes to this bank. We're going to continue to protest outside of this bank, and you're going to continue to lose customers. And you're not only going to lose the people who can't come into the bank that day because they don't want to come past their picket lines. You're also going to lose them forever because when we tell them that you're racist, some of them will believe it, and probably most of them will. The longer we do it, the more we shout. Then, then that's what we're going to do. So we've just picked your name out of a phone book. Don't take it personally, but that's what's going to happen tomorrow. Okay, what do I have to do so that this doesn't happen tomorrow? Well, you could make a donation to um, our organization. What kind of donation? Oh, I don't know. I would say $200,000 ought to do it for this branch anyway. So I pay you $200,000 for what? I pay you $200,000 so that you don't come and accuse me of the racism that I'm not doing anyway? Okay, I guess I have no choice. I guess I have no choice. And this is where this is where we lost. This is where we it's not where we lost the country because you can't lose the country. Country's an idea, but this is where we this is our this is our midway and we're the Japanese in this one. This is where we really 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 made a mistake. We did the right thing. Uh, sorry, we did the smart thing instead of the right thing. And that's the road to hell. And this is the world they're trying to create. They're trying to create a world now where the smart thing is not the right thing. Bill, have you read Antonio Gramsci? Gramsci. He was an extremely influential socialist, especially in the field of critical theory. Yes, 
uh, Gramsci and, believe it or not, a guy named Horkheimer, not, not Jack Horkheimer, another Horkheimer, uh, were the proponents of, of the Frankfurt School. Gramsci was, was really the architect of it. And then Alinsky became the guy who drew the blueprint. Uh, Omega, and, I'm sorry, Omega and Yang? 802 says, nice bank you have there. Pity if something happened to it. And that's how it works. So these two things together coalesce, and then banks and other companies decide, wow, it's not about being in business anymore. Now it's about, it's, you know, again, one of the reasons I love doing the show is because I, I really get clarity of things that have been floating around in my mind that I haven't really quite put together without going on one of these rants. But yes, that's exactly it. Somewhere in the 80s, because of the out-of-control lawsuits, if the loser paid, we wouldn't be in this mess. That would be a good system. Because if the loser paid, there would not be these gratuitous lawsuits. If there were not gratuitous lawsuits, there wouldn't be HR departments. If there weren't HR departments, there wouldn't be decisions made that have nothing to do with, with business and are completely political. That, give me a second, just give me one second. Almost there. So, so that's what it was. It was a, it was a, it was an act of cowardice. It was an act of cowardice. You are presented with a choice. One of them is the smart choice. The other one is the right choice. And you take the smart choice. And you lose. Now, they own you, which kind of ties into the cis argument, because once you take the knee, this is the thing about compliance, about 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 why resistance is important and why they're fighting this transgender battle so hard. If you take a knee on this issue, if you start referring to yourself as cis, if you agree to, to that term, It's not just that you stop fighting them, it's that you stop fighting anything because once you take a knee, you have lost your own self-respect. That's the thing I learned about the communists and the Nazis, is that they would force innocent people into complicity and once they were complicit, their resistance came to an end. So they didn't have to actually, you, you didn't have to get the, the population of Germany to actually be in the concentration or the death camps shooting people. All you had to do was make sure that they knew 
that something was wrong. You didn't even have to have, they didn't even have to know what was actually happening. They just had to know that something was very, very wrong because all of their Jewish neighbors were disappearing and they could tell themselves whatever fiction they wanted to. Oh, well, you know, they've been deported or Hitler would never kill all those people. They've been deported or they left or whatever. Okay, that's fine. But they knew something was wrong. And once they knew something was wrong and didn't do something about it, now you own them. Now they're complicit in the murder. They're not, um, it's an act of omission rather than commission, but it's still complicity. So you can't fight back when you're a part of the system. In the Soviet Union, an empire of terror, you find that there are genuine bastards that like to kill people, and then there are people who inform on people who end up getting killed, and they do it because they've got that kind of meter-made sort of, or DMV kind of little power trips that they're on, but also because they finally got a little power and a little respect and a little, people, little fear. They're usually loners, these, these snitches, these, every single apartment flat in the Soviet Union had a floor snitch, at least one on the floor. It wasn't like the KGB went after them. They just started calling in. They just, they're just, certain percentage of the population is just wired that way. They're, they're angry and they're bitter and they're failures. And now all of a sudden they can make a phone call and make that successful, happy family disappear. And there's no downside. No one's going to know it was them. They don't have to give their name. They just call the uh, local office of the NKBD or the KGB or the Cheka or the G uh, OGP, whatever it happened to be at the time. Make a phone call. Hello, comrade. I'm, I'm, I'm a loyal citizen, and and and, uh, and I heard on my floor at this address on the fourth floor, I heard um, uh, this family in this apartment, I heard them speaking French on the telephone. I think they might be spies. And then they're gone. So that person's complicit. But the people who are also complicit are the people who live next to those people that disappeared because they didn't inform on them and they certainly didn't murder them, but they knew they had been murdered and they didn't do anything about it. And that's how the, um, that's how they operate. And they're very effective. I, I, I see so much damage, I still don't for a second believe they're going to win. This is, authoritarianism is the, authoritarianism and censorship, I hope you're listening YouTube, censorship is the, is the, is what cowards do. Censorship is what you resort to when you have an inferior product. Censorship is what you do when truth is not on your side. And so I believe in the giant wrecking ball of reality and it's starting to hit them pretty hard. I'd love to say that we argued our way out of it, but we didn't. We did our best, but the big wheel turns and, and things happen, but we don't want censorship because we're not afraid of the truth. And we're not afraid of the truth because our philosophy is not predicated on inverting the truth. And I think with one question done and, and this continuous sense of guilt and, 
and uh, shame I feel for not doing more of them. I think it's probably a good idea for me to wrap this up right now because this is a showmanship talking rather than businessmen talking. If I was being more of a businessman, I'd answer more of these questions and stop shooting our, our members. But I think this is time for me to um, to to close this one up because anything after well, you want a three-hour tour, where you got a two-hour and twenty-minute tour. Um, I think anything after this is going to just I don't have anything left let's put it that way this was a serious this was a serious important uh, little interaction that we've had here and I think that anything I add to it right now is going to water it down for me um, and one of the main reasons I think I should stop now is because I want to I want to go out of the show with this stuff in my head so I can make some sense out of it um, because I actually think that that last bit the holy jar bit is actually really pretty important and as I often say to Natasha whenever I finish a speaking event the first thing I do I come back down amidst the roar of the applause obviously I have to usually shout in her ear but the first thing I always say was was I any good yeah, yeah you were real good but what did I say I I don't I'm not really saying these things I'm just kind of channeling them so um I know, I know. The, the the main problem, of course, with doing an internet show is I don't get to hear the roaring applause. But fortunately, I do have a one of those miracle things that you guys can't see, and I'm not going to show you. And I've got a little dial here, so whenever I see something I really, really like, turn up. That's why I often pause or lose track when you see me go off the rails like that. You know, on something, and and Eric is screaming, "Stay on target! Stay on target!" And I'm going, oh, "It's because it's because of the sound of the applause and the cheering and." And the, and, and the chanting of my name over and over again can be very distracting sometimes, but, you know, what's the point of doing this if you don't have that? The Stratocatharsis Lounge. Dave Olson, uh, you're a fine fellow. By the way, Dave, since you're here, uh, i got to tell you, um, on my most miserable days, on my most miserable days, and I have to do this show sometimes when I'm not feeling good, and sometimes I do the show not feeling good, but most of the time... I'm affected by this, but on every single show, Dave, no matter how bad I'm feeling, every time we kick this thing off and you do your um, and you do your mission control thing, you know, um, flight go, Fido go, it just makes me happy. It just cheers me up. So um, there you go. We can hear the uh, vacuum cleaners, the uh, the uh, the janitorial uh, death squads on its way. So I'm going to have to cheese it. I missed that. Uh, I missed that expression. I never used it. Never got to use. It. Yep, there it is. Booster go, retro go, Guido go, Fido go, Ecom go, Telmu go, GNC go, Surgeon go, Capcom. We are go for straddle lounging. It makes me happy. It makes me happy every single time. I'm very grateful. Uh, okay, kids. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Stress Free Lounge, which is made possible by the members of BillWhittle.com who stay with us through thick and thin, and it's been thin lately because Bill's been working real hard on things that have a, enough of a budget behind it to do um, to, to, to make them last. And I'm working real hard on doing something to uh, reimburse you guys for that on some level anyway. Um, but in any event, I'm very grateful as always for the, for the electricity and my wife and I and all of Steve and Scott and everybody else. It's a small group of people that just pay $9.95 a month, and they keep doing it, and we're still here, and I get to say whatever I want to 
because while I may say something that will piss off one or two of you enough to cancel your memberships, I'm not talented enough to say something to piss off all of you. So here we are, we stay in business. So uh, that's something I'm very grateful for. And some pay more. Well, we'll put, uh, Mr. Tomes, some people pay $49 a month. And uh, those people are extra special. But it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if you if you don't pay anything. We're just happy to get the message out, and that's what the members are all about is getting the message out. Okay, so that'll do it. Uh, so um, we'll see you on Monday for uh, Stratosphere Studios. We'll actually have something to show, something of some progress. Who knows? This thing may actually get off the ground after all. Somebody pointed out that this would be a good thing to have the astronauts talk about. It would. I was um, was watching a video about a uh, about body cam footage of this Gen Z. Uh, girl who got pulled over by the police and couldn't believe she was being arrested. That kind of thing would be fun to talk about too. Um, I'm mostly looking forward to taking uh, letters for that for that last minute on the moon thing. And I like the sound of that Major Mace Mattingly. Thank you, Eric. Major Mace Mattingly and the last men on the moon. I even got the introduction written. Look up Project Horizon. It's like I. It's like. It's like I went back and wrote. His, it's like I had a time machine and I went back and created some history to make my little animation idea even more interesting. That's the kind of serendipitous discovery that is. Project Horizon, secret military moon base, ready in 1966. True story. Uh, reality is always more interesting. So go out and uh, get yourself some reality, but um, you know, like everything else, uh, in moderation. We'll see you next time.